0: He's ready to get back to Romans. Romans chapter 11, verse 25. Y'all remember that that's exactly where we were, right? Okay, good. Who can tell me how Romans begins? Do we need a little refresher, a little brush up? It's been a minute. How does it begin? We're all terrible people. We all stink. We're all sinners. The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against the unrighteousness of men, and that's all of us. We are all evil. Mankind has daddy issues. We are rebels. We are hypocrites. We are judgmental, self-righteous jerks. We can be all three before breakfast. Most of us were this morning. (laughs) Jamie's going to own it. Yeah, David was that way before breakfast. (laughs) Okay, the good news, though, is that from the beginning, God has been redeeming a people for himself, saving us from our sins. From the time of Adam to the time of Noah to the time of Abraham to today, what Ben and Nathan have been teaching us about over the last couple of months, right? The household of faith, the family of God, the people of God. God has been setting apart a people for himself. And when it comes to the people of God, the father of the faith, The guy we look to is who? The father of the faith is Father Abraham. We learn about him in Genesis. We learn about him more uh, in Romans 4 and 5 when we talk about salvation being by grace alone through faith alone. So the man's name is Abraham. After Abraham comes Isaac. After Isaac comes Jacob, who is called Israel, and Israel had 12 sons who are the 12 tribes of Israel, and that's the nation of Israel. And out of the nation of Israel comes Moses and the prophets and the priests and the kings, and eventually the Messiah, Jesus, through whom all the nations of the earth are to be blessed and saved. So that means that Jesus was a Jew. He was Jewish. He was of the tribe of Israel, a descendant of David, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, And when he came, he came to the people of Israel. So the first Christians were largely Jewish. But the plan was not for the good news to be limited to the Jews or the people of Israel, but for the gospel, the good news, to go out into all the earth. So Jesus gives his great commission, go out to all the earth, make disciples of all nations. Right? And so by the end of the first century, something happened. Up until that point, the majority of believers of the people of God in the world were Jews. But by the end of the first century, that wasn't true anymore for the first time. By the end of the first century, the greater portion of God's people were Gentiles. They were from the nations who were not Israel. Many of the Jews had rejected Jesus. And that led to the question, so have God's promises to the Jews, to Abraham, To Abraham's children, remember God's promises are for you and for your children. Have God's promises to Abraham and Abraham's children, the children of Isaac, the children of Jacob, have they somehow failed? And in Romans, Paul's been dealing with this objection or this concern since chapter 9, really. We're coming to the end of three chapters of what is going on. Why isn't everybody saved? Does God choose Why and how does God choose? Why does he reject some and not others? And then behind that question is, why are there so many of Abraham's children, so many Jews who have rejected Jesus? Why is that? Did God's promises somehow fail? And if they did, if they failed the children of Abraham, will they fail me and my children? Okay, now that's the concern, that's the question, and that's where we've been at. This is the end of a big argument about that that he's been making, and I'm not going to take the time to go back. If you want it, the sermons are there. They're all online. You can go listen to them. But here's where we're going to pick up this morning, and it's with a mystery. A strange thing that's hard to understand, but something that's worth puzzling over. Okay? Ready for it? Romans 11, verse 25, begins this way. Lest you be wise in your own sight, okay? First concern, be very careful when we talk about these things and when we think about these things. These are dangerous waters, and it is easy to get proud when you are considering the sin and apostasy of other people. It's very easy to get proud and to think you know things that you don't know. That takes wisdom, and it takes the wisdom of God. And we live in a world that is long on knowledge and short on wisdom, where we have all been trained. We get knowledge all over from all over the place. We have access to knowledge in our pockets, and we've all been trained to be quick to judge, quick to assume, quick to assert, quick to blurt out our own ill-formed, ill-informed opinions and judgments. It's called the internet, and it's not wisdom. It's being wise in our own sight. We have a world where college professors get paid to sit in judgment on the Bible. Michaela and I were talking about this last week. There's a world of professors who think they're so wise to be able to sit and get paid to say, well, you know, I don't think the Bible uh, has much to say to anybody. I think it's kind of dumb, actually. I think it's kind of foolish. I'm not sure it's true. I I don't know that any of this ever actually happened or existed. I'm not sure that Jesus existed. And what do you say to a college professor who says that sort of thing? You're an idiot. Correct. That's what you say. Because nobody cares what you think. The Bible says you're dumb. In 2,000 years, who's going to be worshiping you? In 2,000 years, what of your words are going to be remembered? None. You're just not that important. Your name won't even be remembered. But until heaven and earth pass away, not a word of scripture will pass away. And in 2,000 years, the name of Jesus will still be worshipped and praised. So, uh, you're dumb. I lived in Bloomington for 18 years, so I was a college pastor. I have a special place in my heart for college professors. So, they're just all dumb, that's what I think. Unless you're one of them, then you're very bright. God condemns the pride of men who are wise in their own sight. But more than college professors, it's especially true of people who think they can peer into the mysteries of God and judge what he's doing in his own secret counsels. In this case, the sin and apostasy of Israel, that's what we're talking about. So don't be proud when you consider the sin and apostasy of other people. You don't know what God's doing, you don't know why, and you need to be careful. Okay, So lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of Gentiles have come in. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Okay, here's what he's saying. Again, before Jesus came, the people of God were primarily Jewish. They were the children of Abraham, primarily but not exclusively. Just a couple weeks ago, been preached about Rahab, right? Rahab was a Gentile prostitute who God had mercy on. We have other examples of Rahabs throughout the Old Testament. We have Ruth, the Moabitess, right? We had a whole sermon series on the book of Ruth. Both Ruth and Rahab are part of the line of David, which means they are ancestors of Jesus. We have other examples in Scripture. We have Naaman We have a whole city, maybe the most prominent example, the city of Nineveh, that repented top to bottom when God sent the prophet Jonah to them. So we have other examples of Gentiles in the Old Testament who become part of the people of God, grafted in like wild olive shoots like Paul talks about earlier in Romans 11, but only a few of them. But a few of them with the promise that God's kingdom is going to expand and cover the whole earth and the nations are going to be ruled by the one true God, which is what happens when Jesus comes. Just not the way that anybody thought. What people thought was going to happen is that the nation of Israel was going to ascend behind a king who ruled with an iron rod, who ruled with a sword. And what that meant was a king was going to come and he was going to conquer all the nations of the earth and establish a one-world government under the nation of Israel. And they were wrong. Instead of conquering and subduing the nations with the sword, Jesus came to conquer the nations by his word, to convert the nations and bring them into the household of faith. And that was highly offensive. So Jesus was rejected and crucified and the children of Abraham committed apostasy. They turned away from the one true God. They turned away from the God who had called their fathers, the God their fathers knew, and they rejected him. So God hardened their hearts, and God then turned full on to the Gentiles, to us. So since the time of Jesus, we've had an inversion, a flip, so that before the people of God were primarily Jews with a, couple of, with a handful of Gentiles, And now the people of God are primarily Gentiles with a remnant of the children of Abraham who still trust in Jesus, the God of their fathers. And the descendants of Abraham today, though, by and large, have rejected Jesus to the point that the highest percentage of atheism per capita is in what nation? It's Israel. It's Israel. This should be a concern for us. It was a big concern for the early church. It was a big concern for the Apostle Paul. Of course, he himself was a Jew. That's his nation. These are his people. These are his friends. This is his family. Anybody here care about their nation, about their country, care about the moral degradation and you got concerns Who looks at this city and this community and is concerned about the number of people that don't know Jesus? Anybody? How about your friends and your family, your co-workers, your neighbors, your extended family? We all do. We all should. It's good. It's natural. It's right. And that's where Paul is here. That's why he begins this whole section with, I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ so that if, like, if I could trade places, if it could be me instead of my people, I would do it. That's where Paul is. And he's talking to Jewish and Gentile believers both, and his fellow Jewish believers are concerned about their friends and family. And the Gentile believers are concerned too, because what he says about this has implications for them. Because if God has cut off the Jewish people or turned his back on the children of Abraham, and that means that God's promises has failed, that means that the same thing could happen to us and to our children. So what does it all mean? What's the mystery of how it all works together? This is fraught territory. This is a passage that is a battleground for Bible nerds. People fight about this all the time. Because Paul says, all Israel will be saved. And people are like, well, what does that mean? What does it mean? What are we talking about, all Israel? Which Israel? Just a couple chapters before, at the beginning of 9 and earlier in Romans chapter 2, he said, all, not all Israel is Israel. So what, what Israel are we talking about? What does he mean? This is how I think we should think of it. You remember a couple weeks ago uh, when Ben was talking about Rahab and God's judgment of Jericho and the nations? Okay, In the Old Testament, God built up the nation of Israel and when the Gentile nations filled up the cup of their wickedness, child sacrifice, moral degeneracy of every kind, degenerate sexuality, perversion, murder, then God sent Israel to judge and destroy them. The time had come. The cup had been filled up. In fact, God told Abraham back when he was making his covenant with Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. He says the time, uh, he was telling them about what's going to happen over the next several hundred years. It's like giving him the four to five hundred year view of history. And he says, your people will come back here in the fourth generation. For the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. In other words, God was telling Abraham that his kids are going to go to Egypt, they're going to be slaves for 400 years, it's going to take a long time, and then only after the surrounding nations here have filled up the cup of their wickedness, then they'll come back and they will judge the nations, but not yet. It's going to take several hundred more years of patience and mercy and grace before it's time Before they hit the tipping point, God says enough is enough. When God wiped out those nations, it was a judgment, not for what was going on at that time. It was a judgment of hundreds of years, hundreds of years of degeneracy, of child sacrifice, of perversion. And so you come back to, so that's how God works. God lets certain things run their course. And so you come back to Romans 11 in the world we live in today and things have flipped Israel is under a judgment. Israel has been hardened because they rejected Jesus. And a time of grace and mercy and redemption has come to the Gentiles, to the nations of the world, until the cup is full. But this time it's not the cup of God's wrath against sin. It's the cup of God's grace and mercy to the nations. The nations are being redeemed and transformed and renewed. And it really has been happening over millennia now for a long time, and it maybe doesn't look or feel like it to you, but let me ask this question. Is there another time in the history of the world that you'd rather live? It's slow, but it's steady. Jesus wins and Jesus keeps winning. 2,000 years ago, there were 120 people in an upper room in Jerusalem before the day of Pentecost. That's it, 120 people. And today, we're 100 to 120 people in a room, in a gym, on the other side of the world. And we're not the only ones in this city. The progress of the gospel through the nations has been steady and slow, but strong. And it has never stopped. God's been doing big things for a long time. When the time is full and the fullness of Gentiles come in, whatever that means, and we don't know, it's a mystery, then God will turn back to Israel, to the children of Abraham, and something miraculous and wonderful will happen. And that too is a mystery. There's a lot of mystery about it. We don't understand exactly how it works, the timing, not even sure exactly what it means, except that it's going to mean life from the dead. That's what Paul says. There are a lot of things in Scripture that are mysteries, and mysteries are not worth fighting about. Mysteries are not as clear as other things. What are some of the mysteries in Scripture that you can think of? I don't know. They're so mysterious, I can't think of them. Free will. Free will. will. That's a good one, right? God is absolutely sovereign and in control of all things. Nothing happens outside of his plan, outside of his predetermined plan. And yet we are responsible, and we act, and we have freedom to do that. It's a mystery. What else? Melchizedek, who is this guy? (laughs) This priest-king guy in the Old Testament, where does he come from? And what in the world is the guy in Hebrews, whoever wrote Hebrews... There's another mystery. What is he talking about about Melchizedek? Like he never died or something like that. That is a mystery. There are answers. But it's mysterious. For a long time for me, the book of Hebrews just fit into the mystery category. It took a long time. I still not, you know. Uh, when we be, first become believers, a lot of things are just mysteries, right? And then as we grow, some things seem to clear up, and then we get a little older and Those same things that we thought we had figured out, we're like, oh yeah, nope, that was a mystery all along, and I just I was wrong. There are a lot of things like that in scripture, right? Not all things are equally clear. If nothing is a mystery to you, then the truth is that just means you're a fool. If you think nothing's a mystery, you're just a fool. And also, you've never been married. And at this rate, you're not going to be. Or if you have, I pity your wife or your husband. <laughs> but if nothing's a mystery to you, you're exactly what Paul warns against. You're someone who's wise in your own eyes. The world is full of mystery. Scripture is full of mystery. This, what we're talking about, is, is a mystery. Is there anything on this earth that you can fully know and fully understand? Is there anything that you've exhausted the mystery of? Don't get me wrong. There are things that you can truly know. We can know in part. But fully? With no mystery? No, you don't know yourself fully much less your husband or your wife or your kids. And when it comes to Scripture, when it comes to God, when it comes to this world, when it comes to how God's eternally wise plan of redemption is going to unfold in human history, and where this is all headed in the future, and how we're going to get there, it's a mystery, and it's a mystery for a reason. And we need to be humble. Jesus has words for us about this. He says, there are going to be wars and rumors of wars. All kinds of things are going to happen. Don't panic. I'm going to give you enough to know what you need to know. The world's going nuts right now. People are going nuts right now about the end times. It's the number one question everyone has. People are writing to our podcast saying, tell us about Israel and Hamas and the second coming of Jesus and World War III. <clears throat> There will be wars and rumors of wars. There are mysteries, and there is a world of people who have actually spent hundreds of years deciding that they know, they figured out that the current war that's happening is the war to end all wars that will usher in the return of Jesus. For hundreds of years, people have just known that that's true. They've just known. And they've used that proud determination to justify sitting on their hands and to stop doing the simple, humble work of repenting of sin and growing in godliness and loving their families and building God's kingdom because the end is coming. The end is coming any day now and we're going to check the, raptor, uh, the rapture meter. Uh, you know, you go check that it's the thing online. Y'all seen that? Go check the rapture meter. How close are we or aren't we? Come on. Listen, I love you, that's you, but that's proud and it's arrogant. These are mysteries. And I'm not saying it's wrong to wonder or to be concerned about happenings in the world and where they might lead. It's not what I'm saying. But at the end of the day, there is a world of things outside of our control. And our job is to work and to be found at work until Jesus returns to focus on what we can control. Which are things like, I don't know, our attitude when we get home from work. It's a little bit more important, a little bit more inside your control than what's happening over in Palestine. Our tenderness toward our wife, our respect toward our husband, our love and care and discipline of our kids, our witness at work and in our neighborhood and at school and on the basketball court and at band practice. There are many things in life we can know truly and there is precious little, if anything, that we can know fully. And God gets to decide what those things are. A life of wisdom is a life of humility, a life of being willing to live with some mystery and some tension and not to have everything charted out. Not being anti-truth. There's a lot we can know. There are a lot of fights to be had, there are a lot of hills to die on. God's truth is God's truth, God's word is God's word. Where it's clear, it's clear, and there we stand. But when the Bible itself, when the Holy Spirit itself, himself, tells us that something is a mystery, we had better respect that the Holy Spirit has inspired some mystery. That's what it actually means to take the Bible seriously. When God says there are hidden things that are for God, guess what that means? There are hidden things that are for God. And so what do we need to know? God's decided what we need to know. And he's decided what we don't need to know. And he's decided there are some things that we just don't need to know. We just need to know that, there's, that it's mysterious. He knows that's what's important. Here's what we need to know about this. God has a plan for the children of Abraham at the end. It doesn't have anything to do with you now. So it's not something you need to know too much about. You just need to know that God's promises haven't failed. God has a plan. God has a purpose. It has everything to do with the faithfulness of our God, who is merciful and who will fulfill all of his promises. That's what you need to know. How's it going to look? It's a mystery. It's a mystery. How's it going to work out? It's a mystery. Do you think the people reading this had any idea that we would be here 2,000 years from now? It'd blow their minds. It's a mystery. They didn't need to know. What they needed to do was keep laying the foundation, keep building the kingdom, keep loving their families. God's the architect, God's the builder. God's timetable is God's timetable, God's kingdom is God's kingdom. You've got your part to play. He's the one who sees the plans, He's the one, and you've got your job. guess what's not a mystery? We get this little bit here about Israel, right? Guess what comes next in Romans? Five whole chapters, Romans 12 to 16, dedicated to saying very explicitly what it looks like to live a life of obedience to Jesus. Not a mystery. Very clear. He doesn't say, I don't know, the Christian life is sort of a mysterious... No, no that's, that's not what he says. No, no, no it's, it's you know, He says things like, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. How about that? With Israel, with the future, with all this sort of thing, we're on a need-to-know basis. And what we need to know is that God is faithful to his promises, he's faithful to his people, he's faithful throughout all generations. And just because it doesn't look like what you expect doesn't matter. He doesn't care. He just wants you to trust him and put your hand over your mouth. And in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. God made promises. God keeps his promises. So let's keep reading. As regards the gospel... They're enemies for your sake. Okay, we're still talking about the Jewish people. And Paul, a Jew, says, for now they're enemies of God, the gospel, and the people of God. Always have been enemies of the people of God. Very tragic that the children of Abraham have become the enemies of God and the enemies of God's people. But that's the way it is. Always have been enemies of God. It's nothing new. But as regards election... They are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. God made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and God has not forgotten those promises. Four, the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Write it in stone, put it on the foundation of your house. The gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. They cannot be changed, they cannot be taken back. What God says, God does. What God promises, God delivers. What God starts, God finishes. It doesn't have to look like what you think it looks like. But that's the truth. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience, that he may have mercy on all. So here's the mystery. And it's not all that mysterious when you take a step back. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All are consigned to disobedience. There's nobody who's all that special, really. And God is a God of mercy. And God's plan is to redeem the world, to have mercy. And part of the mystery of that plan is well, okay, there was a time when the people of God looked a whole lot like the people of Israel. And now there's a time where the people of God looks a whole lot like not the people of Israel. And there's coming a time when the people of God's going to look like a whole lot of everybody. And that's because we worship a God who is faithful to all the people he has made and to all the promises he has made and who can be depended on and relied on at all times. He is trustworthy. And so you can trust that when God says something is good, that God wants to give you that good thing. When God sets a standard, you can trust that God wants you to reach that standard. And when God promises a gift or a blessing, you can trust that God will give you that gift or blessing. We're talking about Israel here. We're talking about Jacob If you are adopted into God's family, Jacob is your father too. Everybody we've been talking about over the Faith of Our Father series, this is our family. These are our people now. This is our adopted family. So we've been talking about Jacob. We've been talking about Israel. Do you remember what Israel means? Strives or fights with God. What did Jacob fight for? He fought for God's blessings, and what did he get? He got God's blessings for himself and for his children to the thousandth generation. So, what about you? What are you fighting for? For the heart of your wife, for the heart of your husband, for your kids, for a marriage, for your family, for this community? Who can you trust to deliver on his promises? Jesus, who has secured all good things for his children. Jesus. You just have to be willing to do the work. You have to fight for it. You have to take every baby step. Nathan last week gave an analogy in a sermon. You remember it? He said, It's like we were born without hands or without legs. And God's given us new hands and new legs, and it's a miracle. And then we get so ungrateful because we can't paint like Van Gogh or shoot hoops like Jordan. And we've not done the work of learning to write our ABCs with our new miraculous hands. As if God owed us not just the hands, but the perfect use of them out of the gate. It's all there for us. It's all there for the taking, but we have to do the work. We have new hearts. In Christ, we are new creations, but we have to learn how to use those new hearts. We have to learn how to put to death our sin, the old ways, the old patterns, the old habits, the old ways of thinking, the old ways of acting, the old ways of responding and reacting. They have to die, and we have to do that work on a day-by-day basis. We can't just expect... to be painting masterpieces. And we're lazy at the end of the day. What we really want is we want to exchange the promises of God for our own demands. And so... What we, what we want is God's promise is blessing, and we've decided what that looks like and how that plays out. And so we just demand that God change the world around us and make it into a world that fits our standards and is happy and safe for us. And that's never the way it works. God doesn't change the world. God changes us. And that's how we gain access to his blessings, and that's how we grow. And it's difficult and painful, and it's not what we expect. But we do grow, and we do change, and we do live a blessed life insofar as we're willing to wrestle with our own sin, insofar as we're willing to wrestle with God for His blessings. And what some of us do is make an idol or a god of the circumstances in our life that we think will make us happy. If only my wife this, if only my husband that, if only I had money for this, if only my boss or my coworkers that, if only my marriage or my kids or my job or my finances or this city or this country or my investment portfolio or my grades or my spot on the baseball team or my chair in band. And it's a never-ending list of circumstances that turn into demands we make of God that turn us away from Jesus. And if we could set aside our if-onlys and just say, if I only had Jesus, if I only had forgiveness and grace and nothing else, if I only had the ability to put my own sin to death, that would be enough. Then you might have something to build on. Then you might have something that comes back to you. Because what does Jesus say? You worry about all these things, you stress about all these things, you grasp for all these things. Seek first my kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. I want, I want, I want. If only, if only, if only. Grasp, grasp, grasp. Stop grasping. Seek the kingdom. Why? Because you serve a faithful God, a good father whose gifts and calling are irrevocable. We look at each other and it's tit for tat. I'll be good to you, but only if you prove you're good to me first. Well, if you're not going to be good to me, why should I be good to you? And God looks at us and says, you're all sinners. You're all faithless, but I am faithful. And if we could just live there in the goodness and kindness and faithfulness of God and let that free us up just a little to say, you know what, maybe I'll be good to you because God is good to me. Maybe I'll be faithful to you because God is faithful to me. Maybe I'll be tender with you because God's tender with me. Maybe I'll be gracious to you because God's gracious with me. Maybe I'll forgive you because God forgives me. Maybe I'll return good for evil because that's all God has ever done with me. I'll speak kindly to you because God speaks kindness and mercy to me. I'll bend to your weakness because God stoops down to mine. I will love you because God loves me. And God commands me to love as I have been loved. Wouldn't that change some things? And change things in your home, at your job, at school. But take people will take advantage of me. They'll walk over me. Yeah, maybe. Who cares? Who cares? It'll please God, and He will be with you. And you will walk with him and you will know him and he will protect you and guard you and avenge you. And then maybe you won't need the world to bend to you because when you try to bend the world to you, what happens? You get bent to the world. You get conformed to the world. But if you were to be transformed in your mind and renewed by the good news of what Jesus has done, it would change everything, wouldn't it? Jake, it sounds like you're getting far from the passage that we're in. Doesn't sound like application that flows from the text. Thought we're talking about Israel. I would just flip, just like look right ahead at the very next like chapter 12, okay? Get back to me on that. Okay, but the people of Israel, right? We got to wrap this up. Okay, so here's what happened. God blessed the people of Israel for millennia. They grew cold. They hardened their hearts to him. They rejected him. He cut off many faithless branches. That's made a lot of space to graft in the nations, us. But God hasn't changed. And in the end, God will grant many of them repentance. They'll have a change of heart. They will return to God because God is faithful. Same could be said about many of us. Same could be said about many of you. You've been blessed by God. Some of you may have grown cold and hardened in your heart's stem and are in danger of being cut off unless you have a change of heart in return. All the promises of God are yours if and only if you've repented of your sins and turned to Jesus and given yourself to a life of repentance and faith and growing in godliness. God's plan is mercy for his people. And the question that we need to be concerned about is, is that me? Am I one of them? Are you one of God's people? Have you been grafted into the root that is Jesus? Have you been adopted into the household of God? Do you know your heavenly father? If you don't, then you are, as we talked about way back in Romans 1, just still living under the wrath and judgment of God. Then you need to repent. And if you do, there is grace and mercy for you. If you have, all the promises of God are yours in Christ. All of them. And nothing can separate you from the love of God that is in Christ. Nothing in heaven above, nothing in hell below, nothing on earth can come between you and the love of your Father in heaven. Nothing. Not death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation. God's own words. Why? How? Because the eternally begotten Son of God was born in a barn and lived a sinless life and bore the wrath of God that you deserve. And the cross answers everything. All of it. So that you can stand before God justified, blameless, and forgiven. So that we can be free not just from the guilt of sin, but from the power of sin in our lives. And of the presence of sin in the life to come. And that's the beauty of the mercy of God. And if you've known it and tasted it, then there's nothing left to do. But put your hand over your mouth and worship. Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgment. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord and who, or who has been his counselor? Nobody. Who's given a gift to, to him that he might be repaid? Nobody. Doesn't need you. Doesn't need us. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. When we come to the mysteries of God, we put our hands over our mouths and we worship. We worship the God whose ways are higher than our ways, whose thoughts are higher than our thoughts, whose wisdom is beyond us all, who holds it all in his hands and who loves us and shows us mercy. And now we get to come to the Lord's table, which is its own mystery. Because the grace of God is held out to us in the supper if we come to it by faith. And it reminds us that the promises of God and the faithfulness of our God is more real and more solid and more substantive than the bread we eat and the wine we drink. And so as we come to the Lord's table, Examine yourselves.